This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg. And in this episode, I have the very unique and wonderful pleasure of welcoming Frederick Ryan Jr., publisher and CEO of The Washington Post. He has been an aficionado of both wine and White House history for most of his life. Growing up in Italy and California, he developed an early interest in wine and its production and has extensively studied winemaking and its history in the years since. He has developed friendships with winemakers across the globe, traveled most of the world's great wine regions, and participates in a joint winemaking venture in Napa Valley. Ryan's fascination with wines parallels his lifelong interest in the American presidency. He served in a senior staff position in the Ronald Reagan White House and as Reagan's post-presidential chief of staff. As a media executive in Washington, D.C., he has had a front-row seat to presidential history as it has been made by subsequent administrations. Now, most importantly, he has recently published a remarkable new book which traces the rich history and role of wine at the president's table. It's called Wine and the White House, A History. And I have to say, having read this book, it is without a doubt one of the top three wine publications I have ever read. And Fred, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to the Vine Guy podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Scott, it's a pleasure to be with you. And thank you for your very kind words about the book. Well, it's deserved. This book is amazing. First of all, it's big. It's a big book. And, uh, it weighs five and a half pounds. I could believe it. But the stories in this book, the photographs and the way that you weave it all together, I have to say, I could not put it down. I mean, five and a half pounds. I've got great biceps now. But <laughs> this book takes you on a journey through history, and it just reveals just how influential wine's been to the diplomatic relationships and social entertaining at the White House. It's just gorgeous. And I love how you, you've included menus. You've included bills of sale, historic photographs. This is just a beautiful book, and congratulations. Well, thank you, Scott. I know it was a lot of fun to work on. I, I have to tell you, I, I, as somebody who follows presidential history, I've seen there have been a number of books about the art in the White House and the furnishings in the White House uh, and music in the White House, but there would never been a book about wine in the White House. And the White House Historical Association that I'm involved with um, thought that would be a really worthy subject to write about. So I started on this book, and... The more I got into it, I discovered there was more and more information, original research, things that hadn't appeared anywhere before. So it didn't start off to be quite as comprehensive as it ended up. But we thought if it's going to be the only book on this space, let's make it definitive. Let's give the history. Let's give the images, as you mentioned. And also, let's make it fun. And as I'm sure you noticed, there, there are little quotes and anecdotes throughout the book that people who enjoy wine or enjoy a good laugh or uh, could use uh, in, in their conversations. I'm glad you brought that up because on page 77, <laughs> one of my favorite stories, it's often repeated that at least I've heard about the Nixon administration and how Richard Nixon, big fan, right, of first growth Bordeaux wines, rumor had it was that he would have the wine stewards pour, I believe it was Margot, if I'm not mistaken, he, he would have the wine stewards pour Margot into his glass, keeping a towel around the bottle so the label was obscured, but then have more ordinary uh, wines poured for the rest of the guests. I'm really curious, did your research show whether that fable was true or false? We, Scott, we spent a lot of time 
on that particular story. And, you know, the expression as a as it's evolved is called pulling a Nixon, meaning right. you have a certain wine in your glass and everybody else who you're entertaining has uh, a less um, desirable wine. I found is and Nixon, by the way, as you know, I, I, I would say he was one of the top presidents in terms of knowledge about wine and particularly having a very sophisticated palate and carefully selecting the wines that he served at the White House was was really and particularly having come from a, this Quaker background to become a, a wine sophisticate was was quite a story. But the question of Pulley and Nixon, uh, there were people who uh, substantiated it. And then there were those who said they, they, that it wasn't true, even some White House employees. So I finally found from no lesser source than Woodward and Bernstein. In their book, The Final Days, they validated that Nixon did in fact do that. He would have one bottle, usually a very good bottle for his guests, and then a separate bottle held by a waiter near his table with a towel around it so guests couldn't see that it had a different label. And that bottle would be exclusively for him. And in fact, as you mentioned, Chateau Margaux, the episode they documented was on the presidential yacht, the Sequoia, and a, a fine French wine was served to uh, all of the other guests and a different wine, a 1966 Chateau Margaux was served to President Nixon. I don't think you're going to get any better source than Woodward and Bernstein to corroborate that story. That's, <laughs> wow, yes. that's fascinating. But, you know, that's just one example of the wonderful anecdotes and the stories that you tell in this book. And some of the interesting stories on how wine really played a role in diplomacy. Why, why do you think wine has been so central in diplomacy? Well, it's been central really in uh, the American presidency from, from the very beginning. And in fact, even before that, in, at the Continental Congress, I found a, a letter that uh, John Adams had sent to his wife talking about, like, here they are at the Continental Con Congress drafting the Constitution. And he talks about how hard they work during the day, but then in the evening they find time uh, to enjoy claret, uh, burgundy, and uh, Madeira. And then when Washington is our general, I, I found a receipt of uh, just before a battle where he had his senior soldiers gathered. Uh, it was from a, a wine cellar who had delivered a few barrels of Madeira and claret for them to drink as they were planning the next stage in their military operation. But once Washington became president, wine began to be served at official functions. And Thomas Jefferson played a huge role in that. One of the, the great uh, bits of research I found was in France, uh, sitting on the desk of Pierre Lotton, the, the person in charge of wine at Chateau Yquem, was a letter written 230 years ago. It was written in 1790. Thomas Jefferson to the owner of Chateau Kim. And he said, our new American president, George Washington, is interested in wine, and I think he would like yours. So please send him 30 dozen bottles. And while you're at it, please send me 10 dozen bottles also. <laughs> That's amazing, since I believe the family is still in charge of that chateau all these, all these centuries later. And yes, and here's this letter framed and sitting on the desk uh, of, uh, of the wine uh, maker. And uh, he was kind enough to let us uh, duplicate it and put it in the book. So would you consider Jefferson, and, and just in your opinion, I'm just curious, do you consider Jefferson the most influential connoisseur of wine or who else would that be? I, I would say that the top three would be uh, President Nixon, as I mentioned, 
Yeah. Uh, Ronald Reagan, and I can talk more about him and his uh, why he, I think, holds a position of prominence in terms of the wine appreciating presence. But Thomas Jefferson is uh, is really by far essentially the founding father of wine appreciation in the United States. As an American emissary in Paris, he spent a lot of his time traveling around the winemaking regions of France and Italy and Germany taking copious notes and ranking his favorites. When he came back to the United States, he not only advised George Washington, he advised subsequent presidents on their wine selections. He kept meticulous notes on every wine served during the time he was president of the United States. And we actually have that list in his original hand of every wine that was served while he was in the White House. He even uh, I, I got, others would ask him, I got a letter that a wine merchant sent him asking him, what he thought were some of the better wines. Here's a wine merchant writing to this great statesman. And Jefferson writes this extensive letter back, listing region by region what he thinks are the best wines in the world. He also, Jefferson, designed the first White House wine cellar. And it was under the, the north portico of the White House uh, when the White House was burned in 1814 that uh, the, the cellar was relocated. And as you know, Jefferson began and aspired to produce wine in Virginia. He had uh, cuttings that were brought from France. He had a, a winemaking partner, and he had hoped that Virginia could be a great winemaking destination. Unfortunately, in his time, it did not become so. But today, it's, it's doing an amazing job in the wines that are made in Virginia. Right in our own backyard. I have to say that I absolutely love going into the Virginia wine country. And uh, I owe a debt of gratitude to Thomas Jefferson because it's great. It's, he really did start the ball rolling. Yes. So let's circle back to Reagan. Well, Reagan had been governor of California when the wine industry was kind of coming of age. And he had been a great booster of the California wine industry. And he had an appreciation of wines, not, not just California, uh, but also French and, and uh, other wine, Italian, other wines that he liked. When he came to the White House, he brought his, uh, his preference for California wines with him and showcased many of the emerging California wines at, at state dinners and official events. When he uh, left office, he continued to, uh, to kind of be a, uh, an advocate for California wines. But he, he, on special occasions in his life, he would reach into his cellar, which was quite an impressive cellar. And one uh, note he'd made in his diary as president when he and Nancy Reagan were celebrating their 33rd wedding anniversary in the White House. He pulled up a bottle of 1911 Chateau Margaux, feeling that that would be fitting for the occasion. And it was unique in another respect that that was the year that Reagan was born. A birth year wine. Yes. Now, there's nothing better. I have to say, having uh, just celebrated a milestone birthday of my own and able to pull out a, a birth year wine was really quite a remarkable, probably one of the more memorable wines I've ever had. So good for Ron. <laughs> so you mentioned that they serve French wines in the White House. You mentioned they serve American wines in the White House. I, I'm curious, Fred, how does the White House decide what wines they are going to serve at state dinners or any other occasion? Well, that process has evolved quite a bit since the time George Washington was president. And as you know, when he was president, we didn't even have a White House. But Madeira was basically the wine that was served at that time because it was the hardiest, most stable wine that could endure uh, being in the hull of a ship while it made its way across the Atlantic Ocean. And the heat and vibrations and all would, would not be good for other wines, but Madeira coming 
as you know, from an island off of uh, the coast of Spain, was a, a durable wine that, that could fit the purpose. But then as once Jefferson was in the wine region and he uh, determined his favorites, he not only paid careful attention to, to selecting the wines, but also determining how they were transported to the United States, picking specific shippers, picking specific people to transport it on land, feeling there would be uh, less breakage or pilferage. And so in the earlier days, it was kind of word of mouth, uh, Jefferson advising different presidents and based on what was available. That evolved until uh, the, basically the, the, the 20th century. And then it, even then presidents would rely on their own preferences. Ronald Reagan had a, a friend out in the California wine country who would make recommendations to him as to what wines should be served at state dinners. But it became, I guess you could say, it became professionalized with Clinton as president. He hired Daniel Shanks, a wine industry expert, to take on the role of selecting wines to be served in the White House. He, Shanks stayed on for several administrations and played a very important role in, in the selection of the wines that the president serves. So are they strictly domestic wines to this day, or is it still a mix of domestic and foreign, or I would say old world wines? Well, it's, the, the service of domestic wines has is, is kind of evolved. It, it really began in, uh, in a significant way uh, right after uh, Prohibition. Uh, you know, as you know, FDR uh, signed the law repealing Prohibition, and he had that great line we have in the book afterwards saying, I think this is now time to have a good beer. But after Prohibition, Eleanor Roosevelt specified that wine service in the White House should be two things. It should be limited and it should be domestic. And at that time, in the 30s, the American wine industry was nowhere near where it is today. And I, I came across uh, notes in the diary of the Secretary of the Interior to Roosevelt, who mentioned after he'd been to a dinner at the White House, that the domestic wines that Mrs. Roosevelt insisted be served were marginal at best, and the domestic champagne was undrinkable. But it, it progressed uh, through the, basically in the Eisenhower administration, there was primarily French wines, but California wines began to be served as kind of a novelty at an occasional lunch or less significant event. Then you come to Kennedy where so much attention was on, on, on French uh, wines and cuisine and French culture. And it was mostly during the Kennedy years, mostly French wine were served. And as you see and look in the book, some of the most incredible wines that you can imagine from the first growth Bordeaux to the top champagnes. And after Kennedy, Johnson, uh, it began to move more towards California wines. Nixon was a little back and forth, California and French because he loved French wines. Uh, but from the time of, um, of Ford on, it became mostly domestic and with President Reagan, almost entirely California wines. The only recent exception to California, or I shouldn't say California, American wines, the only recent exception has been uh, President Obama. When uh, President Xi from China came, he decided uh, as a tribute and a sign of respect to our, our special visitor that he would serve a Chinese rice wine. But that's the only time a Chinese wine has been served in the White House. Okay. <laughs> I have to say, I am going to probably shock a lot of listeners, but about six months ago, I was invited to a Chinese wine tasting where they are now growing and vinifying Bordeaux varietal wines in China. And the wine was stunning. So, really? yeah, a little interesting tidbit about China. We no longer have to serve 
rice wine. <laughs> uh, this book is so extensive and it's so beautifully illustrated and written. How long did it take you? When, how long ago did you start on this project? I spent about two years on it. It was something I, I did in my spare time, but because I had such an interest, you know, how, how often can you write a book about something you're interested in? And how often can you write a book about the intersection of two things you're interested in, wine and history? So it was, uh, it was a fun project to do. I spent about two years and then a lot of time fact checking and, and going back to the original sources, because as I mentioned, I wanted it to be comprehensive and, and uh, the definitive work uh, on this subject since it's never really been written about before. It is definitely definitive. And one of the interesting little factoids as I'm reading through this was I did not know that President Carter was actually a winemaker. I uh, see in one of the vignettes that you have, he's actually holding two bottles of, the, of wine that he's made. Yes. Carter, as a farmer, as you know, before he went into politics, uh, raised grapes on his farm. Before he was president, he didn't actually make wine, but he raised the grapes. When he left the White House, he thought, I'm raising grapes. Let's make some wine. So he makes this very small production. He makes about 100 bottles a year. And Many of them are auctioned off to support the uh, charitable uh, causes that he's involved in. But he's the, the, uh, the only president to be a personally be a winemaker. I was very surprised to find out that Carter actually made wine, even, you know, even if it was after his presidency. What were some of the more interesting or surprising tidbits that you discovered when writing this book? Oh, there were so many things. Um, it was interesting to look back on, on the, the way wine was served, the volume in which it was served, and uh, the toasts that accompanied it, uh, it, it's really varied over the years. Back in the, in the early 18th century, there were dinners at the White House where there would be eight or more glasses of wine in front of the guests, and wine was heavily indulged in. And then the temperance movement began in the, in the mid-18th century under uh, President Rutherford B. Hayes, our 19th president, the temperance movement was kind of at a peak, and his wife was one of the leaders uh, of the temperance movement, Lucy Hayes. And when he became president, one of the first dinners that occurred during his presidency was for the son uh, of the Russian czar. And the diplomats and the State Department people were saying, you must serve wine at this dinner. So you must serve wine. And he agreed, serve wine because of the important dip diplomatic aspects of the dinner. That was the only time wine was served during the Hayes administration. And Mrs. Hayes took this lovely White House glassware that previous presidents had accumulated and, and that she, the Hayes administration as well, and used it to serve fruit juice to her guests. And she was given the name Lemonade Lucy because of the fruit juice instead of the wine in the wine glasses. Then, you know, of course, we came into Prohibition which was also interesting. Um, during Woodrow Wilson's administration, the, uh, the 18th Amendment was passed. And then the Volstead Act, that was the legislation that enacted or supported the amendment. Wilson vetoed that. And Congress overrode again and sent it back to him. And the second time, he, you know, he passed. And he uh, was over in France uh, at the Treaty of Versailles signing, ending World War I. And after the signing, the French brought out some wine. The French prime minister turned to Woodrow Wilson and said, you better have some wine now because when you get home, there won't be any available. <laughs> so we, we had prohibition go then until all the way through. And well, the, it's, some presidents didn't exactly honor prohibition, even though the country was dry 
uh, during Warren Harding's administration, the White House was anything but dry. He had cocktail parties twice a week. He would go to the Chevy Chase Club for drinks. He had a bottle of uh, alcohol in his golf bag. And there were even reports that alcohol that was being seized by the Department of Justice was being delivered over to his White House. <laughs> so, so that was during Prohibition. And then, of course, after Prohibition, we had this, this interesting evolution where during FDR's administration, we began to serve wine. But you have to remember the American wine industry uh, was gutted. It was it was essentially shut down, yeah, except for a few wineries. Yeah, yeah they, they except for a few wineries that basically stayed in business because they were providing communal wine for churches. Supposedly, the rest of them shut down. And then you had World War II, where there were no importations. So there was a real wine shortage in America during the the, the 40s and, and early 50s. And and that's when cocktails kind of became the the beverage of choice. But then you see coming back. Uh, and particularly with Kennedy, where wine was becoming a, a part of a luxury lifestyle. And one interesting thing I encountered was this, this link between pop culture and the service of wine at the White House. In the James Bond movie, Dr. No, which was released in May of 1963, there was a great line. A lot of James Bond aficionados remember where James Bond grabs a bottle of champagne from the table and he's about to use it to defend himself against a guard. And Dr. No says, that's a Dom Perignon 55. It would be a pity to break it. And James Bond sits the bottle back down. Well, that was movies released in May of, of 1963. In July of 1963, President Kennedy hosted an elegant dinner at the White House, and the champagne selection was a Dom Perignon 55. That is a great story. That is amazing. You know, what else is amazing is how wine has woven its way in and out of not just American culture, but American history, particularly at yes. the White House. And you tell it so, so beautifully. I, I cannot recommend this book enough. I, I have to say, uh, Fred, this is just a, a beautiful, you know, it's not even a book. It's a work of art. It really is. Well, it's very kind of you to say, and if I could, since you've mentioned the book and, and your, I appreciate your recommendation, I would just mention that. All of the proceeds from the book go to the educational activities of the White House Historical Association, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that educates Americans about the White House. So hopefully those who buy the book and enjoy reading will know that they're, they're benefiting a good cause. And it is a great cause. Now, I want to just turn our conversation to what is, I think, my favorite part of our interview. What's in your glass? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, there's uh, a couple of wines that you feature in the book that you could actually recommend to our listeners. So tell me, Fred, what's in your glass? Yes. Well, I, I actually have two glasses in front of me, and both are wines that I think played a very prominent role in, in presidential history. The first is a, a sparkling wine from California, Schramsberg, Blanc de Blancs. 2016, which is the current release. And the reason I say it played a, a big role in American history is that going all the way back to our 23rd president, Benjamin Harrison, visited California in 1891 and visited the wine country. And the wine that he drank at that time was from Schramsburg Vineyard. Little did he know that three quarters of a century later, when President Nixon traveled to China for that historic trip that opened up relations between the United States and China in 1972, Nixon served Zhou Enlai, the Chinese premier, a 1969 vintage 
of Schronsberg's Blanc to Blancs. In 1974, when Nixon went to Moscow in his dinner with Brezhnev, he served the same champagne. President Ford served the same champagne, Schramsberg, Blanc de Blancs, to Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of England, when she came to the United States for our bicentennial in 1976. And Ronald Reagan, at his first birthday in the White House, February 6, 1981, served a Schramsberg Blanc de Blancs. And it's been served by many other presidents. So I thought it would be a fitting sparkling wine to recommend uh, to your listeners. Well, I, I appreciate that. And I have a little bit of a surprise for you. As most of our listeners know, we're doing this remotely. Podcast is being done virtually. Most of my guests will pour the wine and they will drink it and I will sit here and salivate. But I have a little bit of a surprise for you, Fred, given how absolutely oh uh, <laughs> how absolutely I, uh, enamored I was with the book. I went out and bought a bottle of Schramsberg Blanc de Blanc 2016 so that I could drink it with you. So I'm going to uncork it now. Oh, fantastic. And there it is. I'm going to pour <laughs> myself a glass and I am going to enjoy it along with you because I was so absolutely blown away by your story of this wine and its role that it's played through the histories uh, of the present. So absolutely beautiful wine. Love the nose. It's got a great, what we refer to when we, we smell a champagne or sparkling wine, the mousse. Uh, yes. The aroma, the beautiful baked bread, lovely green apple in there. A um, little bit of stone fruit I'm getting coming up on that. And it is such a pleasure to actually be able to drink wine with my guests, yes, yes. <laughs> even though we're 2,000 miles your, apart. Your, your listeners don't realize that we're both sitting here with flutes of champagne in our hands and enjoying this great wine. <laughs> That's right. So cheers, Fred, and congratulations on the book. Well, thank you. Mm. Tell me what you uh, what you're getting out of this wine. I, I I like this because it's it's all Chardonnay grapes. It is I in addition to the the nuanced flavors you mentioned. I felt a little a little honey, tastes a little honey and maybe a little pear. Uh, and it's a it's a very it's it's a, got a lot of finesse, which for sparkling wines that's kind of the way I would lean. I, th I think it's one too. You know, since it's been served in so many diplomatic events, that it's determined that it doesn't offend anyone. <laughs> this is a beautiful wine. It, it is elegant and yes. it, it's charming and it's just so easy to enjoy this wine. You're right. It's, it couldn't offend anyone. Right. <laughs> Boy, talk about a diplomatic wine. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> well, I would say this wine has probably been served more than any other, certainly for a longer duration and probably more than any other wine by any maker has been served at the White House. I can see why. The, the wine of diplomacy. Yes. So what's next? Well, I've, the other one I picked was a Robert Mondavi, California Cabernet Sauvignon Reserve. And there's a, a very interesting history with Robert Mondavi and the White House. He was invited by Lyndon Johnson to the first state dinner that took place after President Kennedy had been assassinated. It was for the Prime Minister of Italy. And Robert Bondavi being a, a up and coming winemaker of Italian American descent, LBJ thought it'd be appropriate for him to come to the White House. And as soon as Mondavi, Robert Mondavi received the invitation, he got word from people in Washington that he needed to know three things. This is a state dinner. So number one, you need to rent a tux. Number two, your wife needs to have a nice mink coat on 
And number three, you need to come in a limousine. Don't take a taxi. So he rented the tux. He got a mink coat for his wife and he rented a limousine. He went to the White House. Photos were taken of him mixing with the president and the, and the, the, the visiting head of Italy. And they eventually made their way back to Napa Valley and the local newspaper. And his brother, and actually his brother's wife, saw these photos of his wife in a mink coat and Robert Mondavi in a tuxedo with the president in Washington and concluded he must be embezzling money from the family wine venture. So the two brothers got in a fist fight, literally a fight right there and ended their relationship. Robert Mondavi went on to start his own winery, the Robert Mondavi Winery became one of the greatest, in my opinion, greatest winemakers in the history of the United States. And his wine was subsequently served, Robert Mondavi wine by Nixon, Ford. Ford served it to the Shah of Iran when uh, the Shah was there. Reagan served it. Bush served it to the president of Italy uh, in 1989. He served the 1985 vintage. So that wine and the, the history of this wine, and it may have been a wine that never would have been made if it weren't for the White House. I thought it might be a fitting wine to recommend to you. Absolutely. Do you have it in your glass? Let's talk about it. I do. I actually have an, an older vintage. I have a 1994. Okay. Wow. Great and year. It was, uh, it was, it is really terrific. And it's a, a big California in the, in the great traditions of the big California Cabernets, uh, which I enjoy. It's very, it's full bodied. It's very concentrated and it's got that lead pencil smell, which I just love the, uh, and the nose. It's, it's, and it's 1994, so that's, what, 26 years old, and it still tastes young. It's holding up well, then. Yes, yes. That is, that is great. That is a testament to the tradecraft that Robert Mondavi practiced all those years ago. I, I know that uh, I've had some of the older vintages of the Mondavi Reserve, and they are stunning. And I will just add one aside, by the way. I did interview on, a, on an earlier podcast Peter Mondavi Jr. So Peter Mondavi Sr. was the one who got into the fisticuffs with his, <laughs> uh, with his brother. And I had asked him about it. I said, is it true that the Robert Mondavi winery and the, the Charles Krug winery split over the mink coat? And yes. he kind of hemmed and hawed, and he asked if we could kill the mic. <laughs> <laughs> But, well, but did in fact confirm that it was probably the straw that broke the camel's back. There were uh, other things in play, but yes, in fact, that story was true. So LBJ had a pretty big role in starting the Mondavi winery. Yes. And Michael Mondavi, I guess, would be the cousin of, of him, Peter. And Michael was very, very helpful in the preparation of this book. And it gave me the firsthand account of what had happened because he would have, he was a, a teenager at the time and he would have been working at Charles Brook and he had a, a, an offer to become an employee there. And with that fist fight ended his chance to work there. Instead, he went to work for, for his father, Robert Mondavi. And now Michael Mondavi is a great winemaker in his own right. Absolutely. And here you are 26 years later, trying the 1994 uh, Mondavi Reserve. And I have to say, not only am I honored that you have come on the podcast, but I'm really honored that and flattered that you would open a wine of that stature to sample with our listeners today. Well, it, uh, it's, a, it's a special occasion wine, and this is indeed a special occasion for me. So I'm delighted to open it. Well, Fred, thank you 
so much for sharing that wine. And thank you so much for sharing your time and your stories today with me. It's been a genuine pleasure having you on the Vine Guy podcast today. Well, thank you, Scott. I've sure enjoyed it. And I look forward to raising a glass with you in person when we're all able to uh, enjoy life as normal again. Absolutely. I look forward to it as well. And I look forward to getting back to my Washington Post newspaper. Yes, absolutely. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guy, a WTOP news podcast. This episode was produced by Sarah Beth Hensley. And the music you heard is Wishful Thinking by Dan Leibowitz, available in the YouTube audio library. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and catch my Wine of the Week shows every Friday on WTOP and WTOP.com. And until the next time, remember, do good, drink well.